Hello my friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. It's great to have you with me here today, whether you're here for the first time or you've been with me for, well, 620 episodes now. It's great to be on this journey together, studying the Word of God, making it part of the rhythm of our daily lives. And today we're looking at one of those really big prophetic passages of Scripture, Mark chapter 13. And I'll be asking the question, why prophecy? So whether you're here for the first time or you've been here all along, you're very welcome. But please do hang around at the end, particularly if you're a newbie, and I'll tell you lots of ways you can connect to this ministry and receive additional free Bible teaching resources every day. An episode notes page are created and a full transcript of each and every podcast. So hang around at the end and I'll tell you how that works. But with that said, I'll just say bye for now and see you at the outro. The Bible is full of prophecy. Now, the minute I say that to you, I'm sure some of you immediately your minds going and thinking about books like the book of Revelation or perhaps the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. But that's only the beginning. The Bible is literally seeped with prophecy from cover to cover. However, that means we need to have at least a basic understanding of what it is and why God chooses to speak prophetically. So I would like us to consider what is it that God wishes us to understand when we approach this whole area of prophecy and how we should approach it. Now it would take a whole series of sermons across the whole Bible to answer that question fully. However, I think there's one passage of scripture that towers above all others and speaks to this very issue. And that is to what many refer to as the Olivet Discourse. A message, a sermon if you like, that Jesus gave in the Mount of Olives and he gave it in the last week of his life. Matthew recorded it for us in great detail and covered over two chapters. Mark records the main details here in a shorter format and it forms the entire 13th chapter of his book. Many people believe that although books like Daniel and Revelation are truly great prophetic groups, the section of scripture that is most important in the Bible when it comes to understanding prophecy and to give you a framework through which you should approach the other prophetic passages and books of the Bible is this passage we're looking at today. The passage begins with the disciples asking a couple of questions and then the bulk of the chapter is Jesus answering those questions and then he rounds it off with really a sort of a reprimand, certainly a warning to his followers. So let's begin to do what we always do and go through it verse by verse and then I'll try and draw it all together at the end. So this great chapter begins with verse 1, where it tells us, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what a magnificent building. Now part of what made the temple building so impressive were the huge massive stones that were used to build it. Some of the single stones that were used in the construction of the temple were 40 feet long, 12 feet high and 18 feet thick. So in the opening verse we see them leaving the temple area and going down into the Kidron Valley and then climbing up a hill again on the other side onto what's called the Mount of Olives. So they've now reached the point where they're looking down on Jerusalem and admiring this beautiful, impressive temple building. And Jesus responds to the observation that the disciple makes 
And this is what he says. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone will be left on top of another. Everyone will be thrown down. They had just admired this amazing building and then Jesus says it's going to be totally destroyed to such an extent that not one stone will be left sitting on top of another. Some Bible commentators will tell you that Jesus is prophesying about the forthcoming destruction of Jerusalem, an event that did indeed happen and was filled exactly as he describes here just 40 years later in around 70 AD. Hmm, It's interesting, isn't it? The text continues, verses 3 and 4, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will happen, and what will be the sign that they are to be fulfilled? Now at this point I should quickly point out that in Matthew's account, they actually ask when this will happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, as well as referring to the temple. So, it's important to note that within this conversation, three questions are asked. One, when will these things happen? Two, what is the sign that they're about to happen? And three, what is the sign of the second coming? That's the Matthew add-on, 24 verse 3. So, they're asking about something that will be fulfilled in the future, whilst at the same time asking him what is the sign of his second coming? Now, what is obvious to most Bible commentators, particularly when you look at the accounts across all three Gospels, is that his reply may well be talking about the up-and-coming destruction of Jerusalem. Yes, that's occurring 40 years later. However, he's also prophesying about what is called the end of the age. Now, this is a common pattern concerning biblical prophecy in that there is often a near, almost immediate fulfilment and a far-off distant fulfilment, usually in relation to what is called the end of the ages. And I believe, along with many others, that's exactly what's happening here in Mark chapter 13. So at one level, yes, he's certainly talking about the siege of Jerusalem, which was a decisive event of the the soon-to-start First Jewish-Roman War. The Roman army, led by a future emperor called Titus, would besiege and conquer the city in AD 66. The siege would end on the 30th of August, AD 70, with the actual burning and destruction of its temples. The Romans then entered the city and sacked it. However, he's also talking about something far off in the sense of the end of the age and the signs of his second coming as prophesied. So the disciples are asking him three questions in relation to all this. One, when will these things happen? Two, what is the signs that they are about to happen? And three, what is the sign of your second coming? And now beginning in verse 5 through the next middle part of this chapter, he will give his answer to those questions. But before we just look at that in a bit more detail, I think I need to say a couple of things. Jesus is going to describe a defined period of time. I know that this is a demarked period of time because in verse 8 it tells us, For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famine and troubles, and these are the beginnings of sorrows. So verse 8 is talking about the beginning of something, but if you then jump ahead and read verse 13, then it says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. 
So he mentions a beginning and then an enduring to the end. So this coming section describes a defined period of time that has a beginning and an end. So what is this period of time being described here? Well, verse 19 helps greatly when it says, For in those days there will be tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. So at the end of that little section, there is a summation of it. So that's the defined period of time in the future, and he describes it as a time of tribulation. He then describes what that time will be like in some detail, and then he says immediately after that time, that's when he'll come. So his answer to their question in verse 4, which was what is the sign of your coming, his answer is there's going to be a period in the future of great tribulation, and then after that period of hardship I will return. The tribulation will be a defined period with a beginning, a middle at the end, and now he's going to tell us about it in more detail. So this is what he says about the beginning, Mark 13, 5. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. So in the beginning of this period, people are going to come along and try and deceive Christian believers. Some may even, some will even claim to be the Messiah themselves, but don't believe them. Mark Twain, the American writer, wrote, A lie can travel around the world while truth is still putting its shoes on. So don't, friends, be deceived. When you hear of wars and rumour of, of wars, do not be alarmed, Jesus says. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So don't be deceived. Don't be disturbed. Even when we look around us today and see wars and rumours of wars, that is not the sign that the end is near. That is just the beginning of things. He explains this more in verse 8 and says, Nations will rise against nation, kingdoms against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines, and these are the beginnings of the birth pangs. So the disciples ask for a sign, singular, and what he does is he piles up signs up on top of each other, one after another he gives. But we're not supposed to be disturbed by all these because that's not the end, he says. This is just the signs of the beginning of the end, so to speak. So don't be deceived, don't be disturbed, because this is normal and this is only the beginning of the beginning. He continues to teach, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils, flogged in the synagogue on account of me. You will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must be preached to all nations. So he says, don't be frightened, don't, but don't be deceived and don't be disturbed. And the third thing he says is, if persecution comes, during that you are still to bear witness to me and preach the gospel. There's more. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. So for the faithful in the future, there's going to be a dreadful persecution, including pressure from people to recant their faith, perhaps even from within their own family or their own local church. But don't worry about that, he says. You will be helped how to respond to this because the Holy Spirit will give you what you need at that time. 
And then he says, everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm in the end will be saved. That's verse 13. Now remember the subject of this passage is talking about the future tribulation. It's talking about being saved from that, surviving that, and it's definitely not talking about having to do this in order to maintain your salvation, for that already is secure. It's talking about the fact that those who hold and continue to preach the gospel, even through these times, will eventually be delivered from this form of persecution and rewarded. He then goes on to explain how in the future things will get even more dramatic on a worldwide scale. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand and let those in Judea flee to the mountains. So this here is a reference to something called the abomination of desolation. Now that was previously mentioned in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel in that chapter talks about a period of time that will last for seven years. You see, the book of Daniel tells us that in the middle of this period of tribulation, there's something that's going to happen called the abomination that causes desolation. Now remember, he's talking specifically about something that happens in the middle of this future period of time called the tribulation. So Jesus, having given us an overview, he's now going to give us an outline of the whole period, and he gives us some details of what it will be like for us who might have to go through it. But remember and think back, what was Jesus' response to? It was the disciples' question, what is the sign of the end of the age? Well, now he's telling them that the sign of his second coming is actually this thing, this particular event called the abomination that causes desolation, standing where he should not belong. And the big question I suspect rattling around in your head is what does that mean? What is this abomination of desolation? What is it we are to look out for? Now, this is actually fairly clear because it refers to something that actually happened and it happened once before in Jerusalem 190 years earlier during what was called the Maccabean Revolt. Back then, a man called Antiochus Epiphanes conquered Jerusalem and set up an idol right in the centre of the Holy of Holies. The fact was known to every Jew of Jesus' day of what a great and terrible day that was when the abomination that caused desolation stood in that place. But watch out, he's saying here, for that thing, that sort of thing, is going to happen again. And it's going to happen again just before I come back a second time. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians in his second letters, says that the Antichrist himself will go into the Holy of Holies and declare he is God. And once again, there will be an abomination that causes desolation. He's going to desecrate the temple. And when that happens to this future generation, that is a sign that they only have to endure three and a half more years of suffering because it's the midpoint of the seven-year period of the tribulation. Verse 15 expands on this further by saying, Let no one on the housetop go down to enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be for those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that it will not take place in winter. So Jesus is saying that if you're alive at that time and you find yourself in the middle of that tribulation, try and remove yourself from that situation as best you can and just wait for his return. Get out of town and do it quickly. And the, the essence of these verses is about the urgency and the unexpectedness of those events.
he continues, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut shut those days, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. So what this tells us is, at the end of the seven-year period, the Lord is going to step in and bring it to an end, because the persecution is going to be so intense that if he didn't, the persecutors would potentially try and destroy everyone and everything, even the chosen, and that's why he will step in in order to shorten the days. So the first thing he said was, depart and go quickly. And then, adding to it, he says, and at the time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So many false prophets are going to come and try and deceive even those who have endured wrath thus far. So he warns them, be on your guard. I have told you everything here in advance. So if you find yourself living in this period of time called the tribulation, there are three pieces of advice that Jesus has given to those who have to endure it. One is depart quickly, don't be deceived, and be discerning as to what is really going on. After that, he says, the end will come. But this is an end that's not to be feared by Christian believers. This is an end that's telling us we need to live in a way, in loving and serving others, that we will be ready no matter when he comes. So we've looked at the beginning, we've looked at the middle, and now we're going to look at the end of all things as described by Jesus. Mark thirteen twenty four to 27. But in those days, following the distress... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. So very simply, the end of all this is, a, is what we call the second coming of Christ. Now, we've covered a huge amount of ground so far, but what I'm saying is, do not fear, because in the end, Jesus is telling us, well, the Calvary comes. Better than that, even, the Bible tells us Jesus comes again. So let me sum this up, what I've said so far, because there's a huge amount we've got through today already. Jesus has been leaving Jerusalem with his disciples. The disciples turn and look back from the, the hill at Mount Olivet and say, wow, isn't that temple an amazing building? And Jesus' replies to say, well, one day it'll be destroyed to such an extent that no stone will be left standing. And that is a mark of the end of the age. The disciples say, oh, well, when's that going to happen? And what is the sign that these events are coming? And Jesus describes this thing called the tribulation period. He gives it some detail. He talks about how it will last seven years and describes it as a beginning, a middle and an end. And this particular event will occur in the middle of it, which will signal that it is only three and a half years left to run. Now, in laying all out, all out Jesus reminds us that during this time of trouble, this is how, if we're around when it happens, this is how we should respond to it. Firstly, don't be deceived. Also, don't be disturbed because it's all going to be all right for us in the end because he's coming back. 
But we've be, got to be discerning because there'll be false preachers and prophets around and we've got to persevere, endure to the end. Because at the end, hallelujah, the Lord comes back. Now, although this all appears highly prophetic in nature, we have to remember that this is also practical as well. Everything he said has a practical application. This passage is in fact packed with guidelines and practical advice about how we should live our lives in these days. It tells us what we should do when these things happen. It tells us how we should be when things like this happen and how we should act when things like this happen. So this passage is intensely practical, not only to those living at the time, but for us also today. And this is an important point. God does not give us prophecy to satisfy our curiosity or to give us puzzles to solve. His prophecy always contains practical, purposeful advice. Prophecy should always be considered practical. It's not meant to send you off cowering, frightened into a holy huddle. It's meant to equip you to deal with everyday situations, everything and anything you might encounter as a Christian. Maybe you're thinking the things described here only apply to those living in the tribulation period. But no, they have a practical value for us every day, for us today living in 2023. So let's learn the lesson. What did he say the lesson was? He says, he says to the disciples, verses 28 and 29, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and the leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. So Jesus is saying, if you see the beginnings of these things, if you have discernment to recognize these things, you should be encouraged, in fact, because that means the kingdom is coming. He then says, Truly I tell you, this generation, and he's talking about not this generation, as in now, those guys there, he's talking about that future generation who might suffer the tribulation. He says they will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So this is going to happen, he says. So learn the lesson of the fig tree. Learn the lesson of the seasons also. That when winters come, they will truly pass. When you're in the midst of winter, you know that spring in summer is coming. It's just around the corner. And then finally, he tells us this, verses 32 to 37. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch and wait. So Jesus is not just saying that to the disciples here. He's saying this to everyone, and that includes us today. And what he's saying is watch. In other words, be alert. Because we may not know the exact day or the hour. However, we know the times and the seasons, and this should affect how we live every day. Look around you, and you can see the leaves appearing on the fig tree, and take heed. And we too are to watch. We are to watch in order that we are ready and also that we are not deceived. 
because if you live under the safe knowledge that God will in fact intervene, has already intervened for you and saved you, then you can endure whatever life throws at you. And if you recognise that the consummation of all things is always before you, then you can be ready. In a sense, Jesus is always going to come back in our lifetime because he's either going to come back in our lifetime or when our life ends, in effect, that is the end of our lifetime and then he's back for us. So God wants us to understand prophecy. That's true. But he wants us to understand prophecy in order that we might always live our lives in the right way, always ready, always remaining ready by the way we live our lives. And that's why no one should know the day or the hour. Because, you know what, if we did know the, the day or the hour, we wouldn't remain ready, would we? we try and sort everything out at the last minute. So let me conclude today by asking the simple question, are you ready? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ and are you trusting in him as revealed in his word? Because that's what makes you ready. And are you ready for his coming back? Are you ready if he were to come back and call you home tomorrow? A church I pastored a few years ago had an old lady, an elderly lady in the congregation called Maisie Belcher. She was ready, almost more ready than anyone I've ever met. I met with Maisie a few weeks before she died and asked her if there was anything I needed to do for her. She said, no, not really. I'm ready. So the question is, if you knew for sure that you were going to die in the next few weeks or even tonight at midnight, what would you do between now and then? Well, what I believe this passage is telling us that those things that you know you should do, you should do them now. Have you got any unfinished business with the Lord? Then finish it today, friends. Have you got any unfinished business with anyone in your church or your community or among your friends? Finish it today. Anything you need to deal with, deal with it today. Anybody you need to tell that you love them, tell them today. Don't wait until your funeral, it's too late. Don't wait until their funeral, they won't be able to hear you. Maybe there are some things in your life you need to reevaluate right now in the light of the fact you just don't know when the Lord will return or call you home. I read a story by a chap called Hunter Davis who writes travel books and he was travelling along the shore of Lake Como in Italy when he reached a castle at the head of the lake. A friendly gardener greeted them at the gate and opened it and offered to show him around the grounds, which were in absolutely beautiful and perfect condition. Hunter asked the gardener when the owner of the castle had last been there. The old gardener answered, mm, 12 years ago. Does he write and tell you when he's coming, he asked. No, the gardener said. When he comes here, the old man said, I'm almost always alone, except the old tourist. If I see, I ask them if they want to look round, I show them round. I said, but wow, you keep this garden in such beautiful condition. Is that because you think the owner might come tomorrow? No, he replied, the owner might come today, maybe even today. Well, even so, for us too, come Lord Jesus. Okay, there we are, people. 
That's one take on this incredibly important, long, dense, convoluted passage of scripture. If you want to know a little bit more about it, maybe go back and have a look at when I covered Matthew 24 and 5. I took about five days on it, went into more detail and reworked through the Gospel of Matthew, which would have been season three or four, I think. Yeah, season three. You'll find it about two or three hundred episodes back, or you can access it on the YouTube channel where the whole series is there. But that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for supporting this by just making the decision to listen every day, download it, stream it, and make the study of the Bible part of your daily life. I post new episodes every Monday to Friday, and they're hosted on the Bible Project at Buzzsprout.com. Now, of course, you can uh, listen to this and subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts from. But if you want to connect and have all the links to the other places that you can connect to my ministry, then the place to do that is Buzzsprout. There you'll find a link to my Facebook page, the Bible Project Facebook page, the YouTube channel, which is going to be the place where the archive is going to sit in playlist format. There's also a link to my LinkedIn page where I tend to do more structured discipleship type courses and make them available, particularly in the Arab world where Christian posts on social media and podcasts don't really get in. And there's also even a link to Patreon there. That's the place where you can choose to partner with me and support this ministry financially from anything from $2 a month. And it is thanks to those people that this teaching remains free for everyone and freely available on all these places on the internet. So thank you to them. It's also a place where I occasionally post additional bonus episodes, things that don't really fit within the context of the main Bible project. And also just as a thank you, if I'm sort of preaching in an environment and it's recorded or giving a talk in a secular environment, I include some bonus audio there. But that's it for today. So thank you again for joining me. I do trust I'll see you back here again tomorrow. My name's Jeremy McCandless, and you've been listening to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And it's bye-bye for now.